years then. Some of them are still coming over, but that's okay. Good afternoon. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you to this session on economics and secularism on the second of our two-day conference on faith and the challenges of secularism. My name is Shauna Sugru, and I'm the Associate Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, which is co-sponsoring this conference together with the Providence Forum, uh, the Center for Research on Religion, and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania, and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. The very fact that economics is a topic that is rarely associated with faith is part of what motivated us to convene this session on economics and secularism. By now, we are all familiar with the view of human nature presented to us by the dismal science. It's that of the homo economicus or value maximizer. And in the realm of economics, value is typically understood in monetary, not spiritual terms. It's a discipline that contents itself with observing and quantifying human exchanges on a micro and macro level rather than probing questions of higher meaning. So divorced from a conception of purpose apart from the satisfaction of individuals or the growth or output of national and global economies, economics strikes most of us as a quintessentially secular realm of study. Well, as you know, uh, we were to have uh, Lawrence Kudlow discuss this question with us as our keynote speaker, and um, he regrets and we regret that he's unable to make it today. But we are very fortunate to have with us uh, Mr. John Mueller uh, to present to us a keynote address on this very topic. Um, for those of you who, who know him, you will know and agree that he is a gentleman in every sense of the word, and a dear friend to all of us at the James Madison program. Uh, Mr. John Mueller is a principal of a firm based in Washington, D.C., that provides economic and financial market forecasts to investment fund managers, as well as advice to U.S. and foreign policymakers on issues like unemployment, monetary policy, uh, and the reform of the income tax, welfare, and social security systems. And from 1979 to 1988, he served as staff economist and speechwriter to Congressman Jack Kemp and as economic counsel to the Republican caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives. He is also a fellow of the Lehrman Institute and associate scholar of the Ethics and Public Policy Center and in 2001-2002, he was a fellow of the James Madison program at Princeton University, during which time he wrote much of his forthcoming book, which seeks to explain basic economic principles through a natural law lens. So please join me in extending a very warm welcome to our keynote speaker, Mr. John Mueller. I'd like to thank uh, the James Madison Program and the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University, the Center for Research on Religion and Urban Society at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Providence Forum for inviting me to speak uh, at this conference on faith and the challenges of secularism. As Shauna, Dr. Shagru, 
told you I have a special attachment to the Madison program, having been in its first crop of fellows two years ago, and I am grateful to Professor George for taking the risk of planting me there, as well as uh, to the staff of the Madison program for tenderly uh, caring for that seedling while I was here with them. So uh, Shauna, uh, Jane, Judy, Linda, and now Reggie, uh, thank you. You were the best risk we've taken. Thanks, John. Uh, where Princeton University and the University of Pennsylvania gather under the aegis of, of Providence, uh, it's difficult not to feel the hand of Providence at work. And uh, as I've been, uh, as I was uh, listening to the earlier speakers, my ears perked up when Dr. Nicoli uh, mentioned that he had, uh, aside from being, doing his work, had uh, put together a television program on the question of God. C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud discussed God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. My ears perked up because 10 years ago, I helped to um, script and produce a play in Washington, D.C., which was a representation of a debate between George Bernard Shaw and G.K. Chesterton with Hilaire Belloc in the chair. And it was called Socialism, Sex, and Salvation. And throughout this whole conference, uh, I have found uh, Chesterton's aphorisms coming unbidden to mind. Uh, for example, when a speaker explains that secular means belonging to the age, I immediately think of uh, Chesterton's second response to the question of his friends uh, who were incredulous when he joined the Catholic Church. His first answer was to get rid of my sins. But the, his second answer uh, was to write a, um, an article why I'm a Catholic. And among the six reasons he listed was that the church is the one thing which saves a man from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. And um, so many other times during the discussion so far, an aphorism of Chesterton would leap to mind. For example, the modern world is insane, not so much because it admits the abnormal as because it cannot recover the normal. Or a new philosophy generally means in practice the praise of some old vice. And take away the supernatural and what remains is the unnatural. The church does not accept the conclusions of science for the simple reason it knows that science has not yet concluded. For to conclude means to shut up. And the last thing that the man of science is going to do is to shut up. But I'm not G.K. Chesterton, unfortunately for you. Uh, I'm happy to lead off the panel on economics and secularism, which, as Shauna mentioned, seems to be an oxymoron, or rather redundant. And I'm sorry that Larry Kudlow couldn't be with us because Larry and I often uh, found ourselves working together at opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue 
when he was Associate Director of Economics and Planning in the Office of Management and Budget under Dave Stockman in the first Reagan administration, while I was working for then-Congressman Jack Kemp, who had persuaded Ronald Reagan to campaign in 1980 on across-the-board tax cuts, and who in January 1981 was elected chairman of the GOP caucus in the House, which is the third leadership spot. This is my first chance to meet Father Sirico, but one to which I've looked forward for several years, having read his articulate views on the issues of today's panel, but never before having had the chance to discuss them with him. And I'm sorry that circumstances prevented me from getting uh, him a copy of my remarks until this morning. Um, we've heard a couple of interpretations about what the actual challenge we're discussing here is it the challenge of uh, faith to secularism or the challenge of secularism to faith? And we can look at it both ways, but speaking for a moment to those who share uh, the Christian religion with me, um, I'd like to say that, or rather quote something, immediately before and for a good while after my conversion, I was of the opinion that to lead a religious life meant that one had to give up all that was secular and to live totally immersed in thoughts of the divine. But gradually I realized that something else, something else is asked of us in this world and that even in the contemplative life, one may not sever the connection with the world. I even believe that the deeper one is drawn into God, the more one must go out of oneself, that is, one must go into the world in order to carry the divine into it. Uh, as I said, those words are not mine. They were written by uh, Teresa, now Saint Teresa, the Benedicta of the Cross, better known as Edith Stein, a remarkable German philosopher, a protege of Edmund Husserl, who converted from Ju Judaism, became a contemplative Carmelite nun, and was gassed to death at Auschwitz in 1942 for being a Jew. But I wish to call to your attention not the person, but the message. What is wrong, one naturally asks, at least from the perspective I'm addressing now, with trying to give up all that is secular and to live totally immersed in thoughts of the divine. Uh, it's easy to see how we might fall short of this goal, but surely we should at least try to aim for it. Yet anyone who seriously tries to start a new life on that basis, as Edith Stein evidently did, is surprised uh, to feel him or herself gently but firmly, and if we don't take the hint, not so gently, shoved back. Why is that? Because whether on earth or in heaven, in point of fact, it's not just you and me, Lord. And so trying to live as if it were, oddly enough, has almost the same result 
as trying to give up what is divine and to live totally immersed in the secular. Either way, we fail to see ourselves, others, and God as they or we are. And we look at them only as they are in relation to ourselves. And in fact, in relation to, insofar as they're useful to ourselves. And you can see, actually, how this notion would come about. It's in all the bad movies you've ever seen where uh, Bing Crosby has his collar turned around or Ingrid Bergman is wearing a headdress and telling a young postulant or novice, uh, my child, you must learn to detach yourself from the world in order to grow close to God. But um, in point of fact, humans are born with attachments. And instead of, and we really don't have to practice detachment. When we die, we will be detached from the world, and we don't have to practice that. It's just going to happen. What we need to practice is attachment, which means two things. Recognizing the attachments that we do have, objectively speaking, to God and our neighbor. And then ordering those attachments properly. That's the whole trick. And so Edith Stein um, enters the cloister under the notion that those in the active life can go out into the world and explain to people how they should love God above all else and their neighbor as themselves. But she will retire into the cloister in order to be closer to God. And surprisingly discover that in the cloister, the whole issue is how to love God above all else and your neighbor as yourself. She comes in thinking that the appropriate move music is Gregorian chant. And it turns out that what is required is a rousing chorus, how do we solve a problem like Maria? But I digress. Um, the title of my remarks uh, is The Preacher as Economist versus The Economist as Preacher. And uh, as you'll see, I have real historical figures in mind. The preacher as economist will turn out to be, well, it's a combination of two figures, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. The Economist as Preacher was the title of a title essay of a book by um, George Stigler, a famous economist at the University of Chicago. And uh, they represent two different ways of looking at not only economics, what it is to be an economist, but also what it means to be a preacher. And um, I'd like to discuss three things with you. The meaning of economic theory, what is it all about? It's history and the basic implications of all of the schools of econ economics for persons of faith. And the way in which I pro propose to do this is to describe for you what I did with my year in the Madison program and why I decided to do it. 
I will also suggest that in the field of economics, if not also elsewhere, the main problem actually is not that there is too little faith and too much secularism. Rather, there's far, far too much faith, but it is misplaced. There's too much faith, first of all, in the argument from human authority, that is, in the mere citation of authorities without logic or evidence to support them. And second, I will also suggest, as, as an empirical observation, that in economics today, and possibly elsewhere, the most frequent alternative to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not atheism, but pantheism. Economics is in trouble, with a capital T. And that trouble affects not only economics, economists, but also every one of you river citizens or citizens. One symptom of the problem is that I am speaking on this panel rather than sitting in the audience. The letters after my name in the program, as Dr. Sugru told you, LBMC LLC, are not, as you might reasonably suppose, some kind of advanced degree uh, perhaps some kind of interdisciplinary compromise between, between a doctorate of law, LLD, and a BS in economics. LLC means Limited Liability Corporation, and LBMC are the initials of uh, Lehrman, Bell, Mueller, and Cannon, the original partners of the firm. When I was here on campus, uh, I didn't teach, but was constantly having to correct students who automatically addressed me as Dr. Mueller or Professor Mueller. And I think even Professor George uh, slipped this morning when he was talking about the change of program. But for students, it had an obvious reason. It's because I was wearing a tie. <laughs> and uh, what bothered them was that here I was at school, and I didn't seem to have any purpose. I can't recall any student actually succeeding in calling me Mr., even if they knew that that was my proper title because on campus, the term Mr. seems to be convertible with nobody. Still, there was great general dissatisfaction with my suggestion of the old standbys, call me a cab and call me anything as long as you don't call me late for dinner. As far as being an economist goes, though, call me Ishmael, because the whole ship's company went down to a watery grave, and I alone am escaped to Tel Aviv. During the 1980s, every two weeks or so, Jack Kemp's office resembled a sort of cross between a postgraduate seminar at, at the University of Chicago, and included at least one future Nobel laureate, Robert A. Mundell, that and an unruly kindergarten rehearsing for a performance of The Music Man. All the boys wanted to play the lead role and were pointing their fingers at each other and shouting, He's a fake, and he doesn't know the territory. Kemp had hired me um, to write speeches, but at the tender age of 26, I found myself in the position of an unfortunate teacher's aide who, because of the combination of her young age and great height, was pressed into playing the role of Mary and the Librarian. In retrospect, what was striking was that among a group of highly intelligent people, largely educated or at least influenced by a single econ economics department, no one could seem to agree 
on even the most basic facts about the history of economics, such as who said what, when. Aristotle said that all knowledge begins with wonder, and so it proved with me. I began to wonder which, if any of these characters, was telling the truth. Marion Librarian, the librarian, didn't have a degree in music, so she was badly educated, but she was not uneducated. She knew how to look things up. And she recognized the colossal ability of the humblest fact to demolish the most elaborate story or theory, such as whether it is possible to have graduated from the Indiana Conservatory class of aught five if the conservatory wasn't founded till aught six. I had at my disposal the Library of Congress, or rather the Congressional Research Service, which is the department devoted to supplying the research requests of members of Congress, often the very same afternoon, and I was forced to make liberal use of it. After 10 years of this, I found that by this fluke, I could hold my own in the history of economics with almost any PhD I had met. But I later discovered the humbling truth Almost any diligent reader of the daily newspaper knows almost as little about the history of economics as any PhD economist. In my opinion, the most fateful moment for the teaching of economics in the United States occurred one day in 1972 when the University of Chicago's economics department, on a motion by George J. Stigler, abolished the requirement that PhD candidates learn the history of economic theory. This was not a, um, an oversight or a sudden decision. Three years earlier, um, Stigger had told his fellow economists to abandon hope. That is, his contribution to the inaugural issue of the, the new magazine, History of Political Economy, H-O-P-E, was an article of which the title was, Does Economics Have a Useful Past? And his conclusion was, Basically, no. Or rather, his conclusion was, sure, it's useful, but there are many products which would be useful but are not produced because uh, the cost of producing them is greater. So their utility is actually negative. So he was, in effect, saying that it may be a worthy project, but the history of economics basically doesn't have any use. Because of Chicago's preeminence, the departments at most, most other major universities quickly followed. This had two far-reaching consequences. First, of course, of course, for the past three decades, American economists have been educated in substantial ignorance of the history of their discipline. This meant that their um, professors not only lost touch with that field, which was being revolutionized by Joseph Schumpeter's posthumously published History of Economic Analysis, but were suddenly free, almost invited, to fill the vacuum by making up what you might call Whig histories of economics and foisting them on their students. It seems to me that the whole point of history is that it only goes in one direction, forward. A Whig history insists on reading history backward, on viewing the past as a grand ascent to the pinnacle of the present, namely ourselves, a weak history of economics begins by identifying some modern school, like the Chicago School, or the Cambridge, AKA the Keynesian School, or the Austrian School, 
as the unsurpassable culmination of economic theory and interprets the past in its terms. The actual originators of important theories, if they are recognized at all, are claimed as forerunners, as proto-Chicagoans, proto-Keynesians, or proto-Austrians, according to the taste of the historian. Though many of these Whig histories of economics are relatively innocuous, they all fit Hannah Arendt's succinct definition of ideology, a worldview that creates a fictitious world and thereby requires its adherence to falsify the facts. The second consequence was that the loss of touch between economic theory and its own history greatly narrowed the range of economists' approaches to economic problems. As Schumpeter had written, I believe that there is an incessant give and take between historical and theoretical analysis, and that though for the excuse me, though for the investigation of individual questions, it may be necessary to sail for a time on one tack only, yet on principle the two should never lose sight of each other. The profession now finds itself in a predicament from which it can be rescued only by re reconnecting to its historical roots, but these are roots from which it is now uh, institutionally cut off. Mere curiosity about the history of economics alone would not have been sufficient to motivate, motivate me to explore the issue some 15 years later, as I did here at the Madison program. In the meantime, I had to confront the fact that economics is at the same time a branch of moral philosophy and an empirical and mathematical science. My tasks evolved away from speech writing to crafting legislation, of which the most complicated single effort was the Kemp Caston Tax Reform Bill, which was one of the main prototypes, along with the Gap Bradley Gephardt Plan, that resulted in the tax reform legislation of 1986. The political ground rules had changed since 1981. The new legislation would have to be revenue neutral, which means um, that it would be a much more highly charged process, since any tax cut for one group had to be balanced by an equal tax increase for someone else. The basic idea was to drastically lower the marginal tax rates from a top rate of 50% to 28%, while at the same time removing millions of taxpayers from the rolls at the lower, lowest incomes, and paying for all this by getting rid of tax deductions, each of which had a well-financed and highly vocal uh, interest group supporting it. I can give you an example of how this was accomplished from my own experience, because there's one feature in the tax code for which I can honestly can't claim paternity, and that is the doubling of the personal exemption from $1,000 to $2,000. It's since been an index for inflation every year, so it's closer to $3,000. The Treasury had claimed that it was impossible to go beyond from $1,000 to $1,200 without imposing a value-added tax, because the data showed that doing so would shift the tax burden from the upper middle income classes downward. But I, in the process, I came to the realization that the numbers on the page were actually a concise summary of the economic aspect of American families' lives. The personal exemption seemed to go to upper middle income families. And I realized this is because most families don't have children unless they can afford them, while lower income taxpayers were disproportionately childless particularly retirees whose incomes had fallen after retirement and who of, whose children had already grown and left home, and also young persons whose incomes had not yet risen 
to the peak that it reaches at middle-aged. I noticed, though, that the tax deduction for consumer interest, that is auto loans, credit card debt, uh, interest, and so forth, was distributed almost exactly the same way as the personal exemption. And it occurred to me that this is because families were largely unable to borrow for, for educating their children. Because unlike an auto, a boat, or a house, the collateral for an education loan is embodied in a human person. So what families do is borrow against their non-human assets in order to fund the, uh, in, the investment in education in their children. Well, this suggested a simple solution. Abolish the consumer interest deduction, which was received by a lot of people who didn't have children, and use the money to double the personal exemption. And so it could be done without shifting the tax burden. As long as you understand that no, the numbers were not just numbers on a page, you, you were looking at a snapshot of the way American families live. This experience, uh, however, taught me to think quite differently from most other Republican economists. It was and is the growing consensus among the others that the tax code should move from an income tax, that is, one levied on both labor and property income, to a so-called consumption tax, which in effect is labored only on labor income. Also, that Social Security retirement pensions should be privatized, which means replaced by investments in private financial accounts, which are again claims on non-human uh, property. But my analysis told me that the advocates had not done their homework and that both plans are not only economically counterproductive, but political losers for the Republican Party, since both would require a tax increase on middle-income families while cutting taxes drastically at the highest incomes. I believed that my views were confirmed when both plans self-destructed, uh, at least when they were proposed in 1996 and 1998. But I could also see that my views were becoming embarrassing to my boss and that they were making me essentially unemployable as a Republican economist elsewhere in Washington. So in a poker game of academic credentials, I'm holding a pair of deuces, but, <laughs> but there are two places you'll be shocked to learn where any economist uh, with a BA in politics and English uh, outranks a PhD. Those two places are Washington, D.C. and Wall Street. For most of the 1980s, the chief of staff at the Senate Budget Committee was a former English major. This is because the premium is on being able to connect and summarize complicated facts and explain them to a congressman or senator in simple declarative sentences, because he or she has to turn around and explain them to voters. Similarly, on Wall Street, investors want to know what you can do for them in the near future, not what you did uh, with someone else long in the past. There's no tenure. One must make big decisions with fragmentary information, and you're only as good as your last forecast. For the last two decades, The Economist, which has been rated the tops by a poll of institutional investors, is a fellow named Ed Hyman, whom I know is uh, an acquaintance, a nice guy, and he doesn't have an advanced degree. Uh, but investors like him because he's entirely oriented towards gathering facts about the way things are that are not widely known and then fitting him into a predictive pattern. Well, like the unjust steward in the parable, I was ashamed to beg and could not dig ditches. So I, had a, I and a couple of friends decided our, to try our luck at starting our own economic and political consulting firm with me as the economist. 
is required to be, instead of prescribing economic policy, in effect, to predict the results of economic policy in the U.S. and other countries. Our clients, as Shona mentioned, have been money managers and, in some cases, governments. And predictive or descriptive numbers crunching is basically what I've done for the past 15 years, for example, as one of the usual suspects in the Wall Street Journal's roundup of economists. Alfred Marshall, a once a 19th century economist, once gave another economist this excellent advice. He wrote, one, use mathematics as a shorthand language rather than an engine of inquiry. Two, keep to them till you have done. Three, translate into English. Four, then illustrate by examples that are important in real life. Five, burn the mathematics. <laughs> Once you realize this, the math loses its mystique, and you become a man of uh, simple pleasures like Mr. Micawber. You recall annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 19 pounds six, six result happiness. Annual income 20 pounds, annual expenditure 20 ought and six, Result, misery. But for a practitioner of mathematical eco economics, the balance of happiness and misery is determined by the number of equations and the number of unknown variables. Four unknowns, four equations, result, happiness. Four unknowns, three equations, result, misery. Over time, I came to suspect that the most um, salient difficulties and bizarre results in economics and I will just mention a famous recent paper on abortion and crime, are the result of having more unknowns than equations. To deal with this situation, what economists do is either result to resort to circular logic or else to replacing variables with constants. That is, to prescribe reality instead of trying to, to measure it. So in my Madison year, what I tried, in effect, to do was to trace economics to its logical roots. And I discovered that someone had been there before me, Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, and he is the preacher's economist uh, I referred to in the title, was a member of the Order of Preachers, which was started by Dominic Guzman, with a novel idea that the best way to get rid of heretics is not to burn them, but to persuade them to be orthodox. And he recognized that persuading someone requires you to work back from your obvious disagreement to the point at which you can agree. With schismatic Christians, you appeal to the New Testament. With Jews, you appeal to the Hebrew scriptures, or what we Christians call the Old Testament. But for everyone else, there is no common scriptures, so you must agree to reason from common experience. Nowadays, the order of preachers or Dominicans have become well, sort of stodgy, but they still ret retrain the, the traces of their origins. And, and to give you the, I was uh, educated just for two years, uh, freshman, sophomore year of high school by the Dominicans, but it left a, a lasting impression on me. And the best way to give the gist of the flavor of the order is to tell a story that they tell on themselves is, um, uh, is probably apocryphal, especially if it, re if it refers to the Middle Ages. A guy jumps out of an airplane uh, with a parachute, and he floats down and gets stuck up in a tree. And there's a, a, a guy in a white cassock down below reading his prayer, prayer book. 
And he stops and looks up and he says, uh, I perceive, sir, that you are stuck in a tree. And the, the guy in the tree looks down and says, and I perceive, sir, that you were a Dominican. What you say is true, but it doesn't seem to help. <laughs> but actually, identifying what is true is the beginning, no matter what you want to do. Because I've just said that economics is stuck in a tree. And the first thing to do is to verify or agree whether this is the case or not. Because if, you, if the economist responds, well, it's all a matter of perspective, I just don't want to stoop to your level, you've got a problem. I said they were stodgy. The nearest thing I think that you could get to the Dominicans as they were in the 13th century, now this was a few decades after they were founded, the nearest thing you could get today is Opus Dei, I think. And I, I say that because um, there was a sort of um, ex exotic, exotic nature about them, a hint of uh, something strange. And uh, um, what it was came to me last week when Opus Dei came up, and my son Peter, who goes to a, a, a school run by Benedictines, whose arch rival is the Heights, which is a school run by Opus Dei, he said, uh, I heard that some of those guys wear hair shirts under the clo their clothes. And I thought back to the uh, retreat that I'd been on, in fact, with Larry Kudlow. And I thought to myself, you know, I never noticed that. They could have been wearing hair shirts the whole time, and I wouldn't have known it. In fact, if the person sitting next to you in the audience could be wearing a hair shirt, and you wouldn't know it. And I realized that there's something un-American about that. I mean, it's not that we object to hair shirts. It's a free country. What we object to is people wearing them under their clothes. Instead of outside, where everybody can see it and where they can edify their neighbors. But I digress again. There's a famous poem called The Hound of Heaven, and the Dominicans, or Dominicanes, as they were called in Latin, were hounds of heaven, at least according to the, their detractors, who split the name into two words, Dominicanes, <clears throat> the, the Lord's dogs. And um, it's a, sort of appropriate because Aquinas was sort of a, this big bloodhound who went around sniffing things, sniffing ideas right down to their logical roots. In his economic writings, I believe, Aquinas has given us a schematic outline of the economic aspect of human action. And I believe that it contains only four elements, none of which is original to Thomas. In fact, the four elements are entirely derived from two sources, Aristotle and Augustine. Aquinas' genius lies entirely in the arrangement that is in recognizing that uh, to get a complete picture requires combining the insights of both men, not taking either of their systems and making it stand by itself. And I believe that it contains the first complete statement in history of what is involved in any human ac economic action, one which is not only formally complete, but also valid at any level from a single person to the whole world economy. Each of the four elements can be named in a word or two and stated in four paragraphs or possibly four sentences. These are, if you will, the first things of economics. I'd like to state this outline and then restate it or look at it th from three different angles. 
First, from the point of view of an economist, which is how I arrived at it. Second, from a common sense point of view. And third, to consider them as a key to understanding the history of economic theory and its implications for persons of faith. The first item is utility. We value scarce means according to their usefulness in satisfying human wants. Two, production. Such goods are produced by combining the services of workers and property. In more modern terminology, human and non-human capital, both of which are themselves reproducible. Three, equilibrium. The sale of each product under conditions of equilibrium provides the compensation of its producers, that is, uh, the labor and property compensation that goes to the workers and property owners. And four, final distribution. While scarce means are valued according to their utility, the ends of economic action are persons whose value to the acting person <coughs> is expressed by how he, or how he or she distributes scarce goods among them, including himself. Um, I'd like to emphasize that this theory so far is purely descriptive or positive. It doesn't tell people what they ought to do. It tries to describe what they do do. Now, what does this mean in plain English? It means that all human activity raises three questions in the following logical order. The first is, for whom shall I provide? Second, what shall I provide? And third, how shall I realize the means I've chosen? If there is no exchange, the how is a one-step process. You just produce what you want to use with your own resources. But when exchange involved, there's another step, which is that each person produces something that the other person values more highly than the thing he's produced himself. And then they exchange. To see the logic, let's take an everyday example. What happens in these terms when a woman plans and serves a pot roast dinner for her family and friends? The theory of final distribution, the for whom, explains why these particular persons out of all others in the whole world were chosen to consume the dinner. The theory of utility is necessary to explain what the woman serves. Why pot roast rather than, say, macaroni and cheese? And in fact, with the experience of my wife, if she were cooking for herself, she would rather <coughs> prepare macaroni and cheese because it's a lot easier. But the gesture would be diminished because um, if the people she has chosen as the, the whole purpose of her action don't share her preferences, um, then the act is diminished. And that's why she goes for the pot roast instead of the macaroni and cheese. The theory of production is then necessary to explain how pot roast actually materializes on the table. And it includes a whole range of efforts, everything from uh, the cattleman to um, the butcher to the, the grocery store to the woman herself preparing the meal. And the theory of equilibrium ties this all together by explaining how everything is paid for through exchange of goods for services and vice versa. And more broadly, whether and how everyone else manages to execute their dinner plans for the same evening. Let's turn to the historical perspective. Where did these elements originate? 
The notion that economic val uh, value is based on utility was briefly suggested by Aristotle in Ethics uh, Book 5, Chapter 5, who called it cria, or need. But the theory of utility, using the word in this sense, was first used by St. Augustine. When we consider things in themselves, Augustine said, we recognize a kind of scale of being, ascending all the way from inanimate objects, that is, things, to living plants, to sentient animals, to rational humans, all the way up to God. Each thing's being, and thus its inherent goodness or value, is utterly unaffected by any human's attitude toward it. It is what it is, no more and no less. This is the scale according to the order of nature, said Augustine, but there is another gradation which employs utility as the criterion of value. This was City of God, Book 11, Chapter 16, and the one-pager that, that you may have gotten on the way in explains all this, so you don't have to take any notes. Utility, then, is the value of anything considered not in itself, but as a means to some other end intended by the evaluating person. For example, Augustine noted, the intrinsic value of a live mouse, a sentient being, is obviously higher than that of a plant. Yet most of us prefer loaves of bread, which are made from dead plants, rather than live mice in our house. The natures of the mouse and the wheat are the same whether there exist one or a billion specimens of each. But the order of our preference for them, according to utility, is affected by the relative scarcity. For example, the world's only specimen of a certain kind of mouse might be worth a lot of dough. Production um, utility causes us not only to reappraise, but to rearrange the things we find in nature. And um, this is what production is all about. And the theory of production really comes from Aristotle. Aristotle remarks in Politics, Book 1, Chapter 4, that any piece of property can be regarded as a tool enabling a man to live, and this property is an assemblage of such tools. Some tools are used to minister directly to human utility and others indirectly by helping to produce the tools that minister directly. These are produce, producer goods, and some are versatile to enough, enough to serve either purposes. Also, Aristotle observes that tools may be animate as well as inanimate. A ship's captain uses a lifeless rudder for steering, but a living man for watch, for the worker in a craft is, from the point of view of the craft, one of its tools. In other words, wealth may take either of two forms, what modern economists call human capital, uh, the usual qualities of human persons, and non-human capital. To produce more of either kind requires a combination of both. Final distribution, our ranking of things not by their inherent value, but their value to us, involves the choice of both ends and means. Therefore, every economic choice involves two kinds of preferences. One scale of preference for persons as ends, and another for uh, things as scarce means. Augustine was hardly the first to say, as Immanuel Kant would say long after him, that persons ought to be treated as ends rather than as means. What sets Augustine apart uh, as an analyst is his observation that every human being does, as a matter of fact, always act with some person or persons as the ultimate end or purpose of his activity. Earlier philosophers had debated whether happiness lay in making one's highest good, um, wealth or fame or knowledge or moral virtue or pleasure, 
But Augustine sliced through all this. A miser is said to love money as his highest good, uh, and yet he still parts with it to buy bread to continue living, thus showing that his deepest motive is love of self, not money. But, says Augustine, it is not the case that every human acts solely for him or herself. This is precisely what each person is free to decide. So every economic choice is a moral choice. By what principles do we decide to distribute our wealth? Aristotle had pointed out that every community, whether a household or a whole a society under a single government, necessarily has a principle for distributing its common goods among, among its members, which he called the community's uh, distributive justice. But such common goods account for only a fraction of all wealth and income because most property is privately owned. Augustine extended the analysis to embrace all goods by observing that every human person, by virtue of the natural interdependence with other human persons, also has a principle for distributing the use of his wealth between himself and others. And this is the degree of his love for the other person relative to himself. He said that, said that in Unchristian Doctrine. In other words, if there are only two of us, and I love you equally with myself, I give you half of my resources. It's that simple. We share our wealth with the people we love and exchange our wealth with the people we don't. Two persons agree to an exchange when the persons who are the ends or purposes of their action do not coincide. For example, I want to provide for my family, not yours, and you want to provide for your family, not mine. But the ends that we have chosen do coincide. So we agree to exchange. The specific characteristic of an economic relation is not its egoism, but its non-tuism, as economist Philip Wicksteed put it, to being the Latin for thou, just as ego is for I. So he said, the economic relation does not exclude from my mind everyone but me. It potentially includes everyone but you. Finally, equilibrium, the three irreducible aspects, uh, the first three are present even without exchange, but ordinarily we're not talking about Robinson Crusoe, but rather a community integrated by exchange, money, specialized production, and the legal and social uh, political institutions this entails. Aristotle suggested that the compensation of the producers come from the sale of the product and he was followed in this by Thomas Aquinas and Albert the Great. But the equality can only come about in the absence of monopoly and other ob obstacles to an effectively functioning market, because only then can no party rig uh, prices to its own advantage. The price determined in this way was called the just price or the uh, equilibrium price. The immediate relevance of justice in exchange in a modern economy has been underscored recently by the economic damage to consumers, investors, and workers that resulted from monopoly, insider trading, self-dealing, and fraudulent business accounting. The scholastics also had a, a prescriptive um, economics, saying what we ought to do, and it was based on the two great commandments. You shall love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those, of course, come from Deuteronomy 6, chapter, uh, verse 5, and Leviticus 19.18, and they're just 
quoted in Matthew 22. According to the scholastics, these are not counsels of perfection, which are intended only for believing Christians or Jews, but the rule of reason that naturally binds the the conscience of everyone, everywhere, always, which for emphasis uh, received the added sanction of Hebrew and Christian revelation. No commandment, you shall love yourself, is necessary, explained Augustine, because everyone naturally loves himself. The whole problem is to love ourselves ordinately, that is, while observing the proper ranking of persons as ends and of instrumental goods as means. Augustine and Aquinas following him placed the fact of uh, scarcity squarely at the center of moral decision-making at both the personal and political level. Since love properly means willing some good to some person, said Augustine, what it means to love your neighbor as yourself depends critically on whether the good in question is, as he put it, diminished by being shared with others, with others, that is scarce. Thomas Aquinas accordingly distinguished two ways in which we can love our neighbor, our fellow man. Benevolence, or goodwill, which can be extended to everyone in the world. And beneficence, or doing good, which cannot. We can always avoid harming others, which is why there are no exceptions to the prohibitions against murder, theft, adultery, and so on. But the share of our scarce goods that can be distributed to others is practically limited because no one, however rich, can share equally with everyone and still leave himself enough to live on. If you doubt this, try a thought experiment. Divide your income or wealth by 6.3 billion. That's your share if you love everyone in the world equally, including yourself. This means that when scarce goods are involved, loving your neighbor as yourself cannot mean loving your neighbor equally with yourself. So since you cannot do good to all, wrote Augustine, you are to pay special regard to those who, by the accidents of time or place or circumstances, are brought into closer um, connection with you. Now, the Good Samaritan in um, the New Testament is the classic case of loving your neighbor as himself. Uh, The story is that um, he found a man beaten by robbers, and uh, he regarded him as a person like himself, not by loving him equally, that is, by splitting his income with him on the spot. Uh, We're told that the man gave him two coins uh, and uh, probably spent another half day putting him on his donkey, taking him to the inn, and so so forth. So he was probably about half of his wages for a week or if he was employed the whole year, about 1% of his annual income. This was a generous, but it was a um, human, not a superhuman act. And everyone should be prepared for such a doable sacrifice to prevent the death or extreme misery uh, to a fellow human. The same moral imperative applies to decisions at the political level, but the limits imposed by the fact of scarcity also apply. The approximate equality of wealth and income that can actually be practiced uh, in a group the size of a household cannot be extended to the whole nation or the whole world. A political commonwealth obviously does require some commonwealth to promote the common good. Weapons of national defense and a legal system are obvious examples. But the fact of scarcity requires that most property be privately owned because in administering private uh, Administering scarce goods, private ownership usually has the triple advantages 
of greater productivity, order, that is specialized knowledge, and social peace. However, the ownership of wealth does not necessarily coincide with its youth, use. That's the whole point of making decisions about its distribution. Now, my final point is the, the development of economic theory from this point. The usual way to examine how economic theory develops over time is to take a Whig history. You take one or more elements in, that are used or favored by the school, the modern school you prefer, choose them as a point of reference and see how these elements uh, are applied by a succession of economic thinker, thinkers um, or uh, a variety of economic conditions. And while this way of looking at it is necessary, it is also necessarily complicated because in the end it becomes a dictionary of biography of economic thinkers, a long list of begats. The way in which I um, have come to look at the history of economic theory is much simpler. It's to inquire how the outline of economic theory has been understood and treated by economic thinkers over uh, various periods or by schools of economics. In other words, do the economists of a given period actually use all the logically necessary elements or do they leave some out and if so, why? From the perspective of its structure, the whole history of economic theory so far can be naturally divided into just three periods. The scholastic from about 1250 to 1776, the classical from 1776 to about 1870, and the neoclassical from about 1870 to the present. To gauge the whole result um, of the development, we can take a standing broad jump over the 750 years uh, to the present and see what we find. And what, what we find is that nearly all modern economists are using, still using Thomas Aquinas' Swiss army knife of four tools. M most of them seem to be under the impression that it contains only three, or in some cases two, instead of four. Most modern economists are trained to use mathematical forms of the th uh, first three elements, utility, production, and equilibrium, but not what I've called final distribution. And the small remnant of Austrian economists refuse even to recognize equilibrium, so they only use two instead of three or four. How did this hole in economic theory come about? Well, briefly put, Adam Smith tried to oversimplify economic theory by discarding two of the four elements, um, the utility, the choice of means, and distribution, the choice of persons as ends. And he was followed in this by almost all classical economists. Their neoclassical successors have so far restored only one of the omitted elements, which is utility. And I believe that the analytical hole left by uh, the continued omission of uh, the theory of final distribution is the cause of most of the embarrassment of modern economists. Now, th this will sound like um, jargon to non-economists, but let me try and explain the logical progression uh, that has gone on here. When the Apostle Paul preached the Christian gobble, uh, gospel <laughs> in the marketplace or agora of Athens around 51 AD, he couched his apologetics in a biblically orthodox version of natural law, which he adapted from elements of existing Greek philosophy. We are told in uh, Acts 17:18 that some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. 
This is before the, the famous um, confrontation in the Areopagus. In fact, this is what led to his invitation to uh, discuss his God, which had risen from the dead with the Greeks. And I believe that there are philosophical implications, a whole worldview embedded in each one of these three views, and therefore embedded in the economic theory of any period, including the present. The four elements scholastic scheme is a good working definition of economic personalism because it contains all the facets of action by a person, the choice of persons, other persons, or oneself as ends, the choice of things as means, the realization of the means, and then exchange, which is natural among social and political animals. What Adam Smith represented was a reversion to Stoic pantheism. Had Smith been uh, content to advance the theory of production as he did, his influence on economic theory would be unambiguously positive, if a bit one-sided. Because he had larger ambitions, his influence is decidedly mixed. And there are t I think there are two keys to understanding Adam Smith, both as a philosopher and as an economist. The first is that it was Smith's ambition to do for moral philosophy what he believed Isaac Newton had done for natural science, to reduce all its phenomena to a single familiar principle like gravity. The second is that having reject rejected his Christian baptism long before writing The Wealth of Nations, Smith viewed himself essentially, essentially as a Stoic philosopher, and Stoics are pantheists. Smith's letters and other writings in, indicate that by the time he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he was not a Christian. In a letter dated August 14, 1776, uh, Smith writes, Poor David Hume is dying very fast, but with great cheerfulness and good humor, and with more real resignation to the necessary course of things than any whining Christian ever died with pretended resignation to the will of God. The Stoic message in the theory of moral sentiments is greatly amplified in the sixth and final edition, which was published after The Wealth of Nations. A wise man never complains of the destiny of providence, says Smith. He does not look upon himself as a whole separated and detached from every other part of nature to be taken care of by itself and for itself. He regards himself in the light in which he imagines the great genius of human nature and of the world regards him. He enters, if I may say so, into the sentiments of that divine being and considers himself as an atom, a particle of an immense and infinite system, which must and ought to be disposed of according to the conveniency of the whole. The metaphor of the invisible hand is therefore apt because in the historic view, men are appendages of the universe, in effect, God's puppets. In Smith's economic theory, this is expressed by the omission of the theories of final distribution, that is, man's choice of persons as ends of action, and of the theory of utility, man's choice of scarce means. Just as Smith suggests, this reduces man to the level of a Newtonian atomic particle. The neoclassical period was inaugurated in England, at least, by the philosophical disciples of Jeremy Bentham. And this represented an attempt to restore the Epicurean theory of man on God, or rather chance. In one way, it's a step forward from Smith, 
and Stoicism in the sense that by restoring the theory of utility, the choice of means, man has been raised at least to the level of an animal. But it is not a rational animal, but merely a very clever animal. That is, he has the choice of means, but not the choice of ends, which are, in this view, already determined by the nature of the animal. Logically speaking, I think, the next period ought to be neo-scholastic, that is, a return to an authentic personalism which restores the theory of final distribution, in effect, a theory of gifts, why, it is, why and how it is that all economic activity consists of producing and then giving gifts to ourselves and others. But such a restoration must take advantage of the great advances in technique of each element, particularly the variability of both human and non-human economic resources and a theory of general rather than partial equilibrium. But for this to happen, I believe, the requirement that a PhD candidate master the theory of economic theory, the history of economic theory, excuse me, must be restored. This does not mean that economics would be taught as I described it, but the fruitful link would be restored between the advancement of economic theory and the study of its own history. The more facts of history which an economist must take into account, the harder it is to concoct an ideological Whig history that ignores them. But then what do we do with what, what might be called the prehistory of economics, the time between Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas? In the later periods, uh, historians of economics have been able to trace a sociological tradition among economists. But the Greek Philosophical Academy continued to operate until the year 539 AD, when it was finally closed. And this was the year that the uh, historian of philosophy, uh, Etienne Gilson, finds uh, significant or symbolic because the monastery of Monte Cassido is founded in the same year. So symbolically, at least, Greek philosophy is subsumed uh, into and enriched by the schoolmen. And yet, the fact to which I wish to call your attention is that there were no Aristotelian economists after Aristotle. His ideas were seldom repeated and not at all developed until the schoolmen. Why was this? Stanley Yaki, a historian of science, and Etienne Gilson, the history of histor historian of philosophy whom I just mentioned, have both argued that the notion of creation was necessary for the successful emergence and development of exact sciences. According to Yaki, quote, there could be no fu more fundamental difference than the one between a world in which, there, which is in no need of being created and a world that owes its existence to the creator. That difference lies at the root of the invariable stillbirths of science in all the ancient cultures, end of quotation. Common to all ancient philosophies, he argues, was an essentially pantheistic view of the universe. And this pantheism prevented any order in the universe from being complete. Because God was not considered to transcend sensible reality, he always, so to speak, got in the way when it came to explaining it. For example, to make his theory of the cosmos work, Aristotle had to suppose that there are two different kinds of matter, a special immutable kind for the celestial bodies, which Aristotle thought were animated by eternal intelligences, which were attracted to God, the unmoved mover, as well as an, another ordinary kind of matter, 
for sublunary bodies. So a single theory that explained astronomy mechanics and the basic elements was impossible. I'm suggesting that the same thing happened to economics. Economics was born with Aristotle, but it was stillborn. And I think the reason is the same. Aristotle had discussed friendship as a sharing and had even suggested that the practical possibility of sharing among friends is limited by the fact of scarcity. But he was never able to state the principles of personal distribution um, by which we decide how much of our scarce goods to allocate to ourselves rather than others. Why was this? It's basically because neither his God nor his view of human persons uh, of humans is our persons. God is the unmoved mover, but he knows individual human he doesn't know individual humans at all at all. He only knows us collectively because we are member of the members of the same species. And um, he also says in his ethics that where there is a great disparity, there can, for example, between God and man, there can be no friendship. So what I'm suggesting is that the, the pantheistic view prevent, prevented the sort of insight that Augustine had of a, a man approaching God, however transcendent, as a person, and a God approaching each individual person as a person, as an individual, uh, rather than as a member of a, of a group. Now, Chesterton is often misquoted as, as having said, the first effect of not believing in God is to believe anything. Despite considerable effort, Chesterton scholars have been unable to find it in his writings. But I will state it as an empirical generalization that the most frequent alternative to believing in the God of Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob is not believing in nothing, but to believe in everything. That is, the main alternative to biblical orthodoxy is not atheism, but pantheism. We in America are so steeped in pantheism that we do not recognize it uh, when we hear it. Use the force, Luke. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience, um, this is a deep problem, especially for economists. The order in market, markets is not a theory, it's a fact. The question is where the order comes from. Augustine says the order comes from the conscious choices of humans, but also this image, or as I said, trace of equity, is stamped on the business transactions of men by the supreme equity. But to many, if not most, economists of my generation who were raised on Smithology, the argument from design does not point to a creator. What was it, I finally began to wonder, that unites Marxists, libertarians, and some supply-siders who can't agree on anything else in their um, excessive admiration for Adam Smith? I concluded that it is the mating call of pantheism. The only thing they get to disagree about is, whether, uh, is which collective, the proletariat, the stock market, or the global electorate, best expresses the mind of God. And again, speaking personally, uh, by the time I got out of college, I was an atheist. And sometime after I got married, I found myself returning, as I thought, to Christianity. But after a couple of years, I realized that I had only been converted to pantheism because I was deeply impressed, as I've just described, by the order in markets. But that's where I saw it. But it was given a pantheistic interpretation by all the other economists around me. There's a long process of mental readjustment that is necessary before you can then take the extra step to convert to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Finally, 
and this is finally, I believe that this has a significance for the meaning of the American experiment. The James Madison program is the program in American ideals, American ideals and institutions. You might think, what does any of this, what the uh, Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas, for example, much less uh, the neoclassical economists have to do with the meaning of America? By far the most influential piece of Chicago School's mythology was Milton Friedman's argument in Free to Choose, 1980, uh, when he not only insisted on Smith's uh, analytical originality, but also linked Adam Smith's philosophy with the meaning of the American Declaration of Independence. He wrote, the story of the United States is the story of an economic miracle and a political miracle that was made possible by the translation into practice of two sets of ideas, both by a curious coincidence published in the same year, 1776. One set of ideas was embodied in the wealth of nations, the masterpiece that established the Scotsman Adam Smith as the father of modern economics. Adam Smith's key insight was that both parties to an exchange benefit, and so long as cooperation is strictly voluntary, no exchange will take place unless both parties do benefit. The second set of ideas was embodied in the Declaration of Independence drafted by Thomas Jefferson to express the general sense of his fellow countrymen. It proclaimed a new nation, the first in history established on the principle that every person is entitled to pursue his own values. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to Friedman, the uh, again, this is another quote, the fundamental principles of our system are both the economic principles of Adam Smith and the political principles expressed by Thomas Jefferson. He then went on, improbably, to equate both Smith and Jefferson with John Stuart Mill, but that is beside the point. The notion that all men are by nature equal is an old one. We find it in exactly, or almost exactly, these words in Plato, Zeno of Kidium, Thomas Hobbes, Algernon Sidney, and John Locke. But to say that all men are created equal is a much more specific, and one might say inspired, formulation. For all men cannot be created equal unless all men are created. And Smith's God, by his own account, is a great conductor or superintendent of the universe, but not its creator. In this, then, we are not free to choose. We can have either an invisible hand manipulating men only as God's puppets, puppets, or we can have all men created equal, but not both. Thank you. Thank you, John, and thank you so much for stepping in for us uh, in, in the absence of Mr. Cudlow and doing such an admirable job. Uh, now, before introducing you to uh, our distinguished discussant, I just want to say a word on his behalf. Given the unusual circumstances of, of, of this um, panel discussion, he has not had the benefit of a paper in advance. I believe he was able to see it just this oh, morning. Um, and so uh, his contributions have largely been uh, made independent of, of, of a paper and should be appreciated in that light. 
Um, so now I have the privilege of introducing you to the Reverend Robert A. Sirico. Father Sirico is co-founder and president of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, free market educational organization. An ordained priest, Father Sirico is a member of both the American Academy of Religion and the Philadelphia Society, is, and is on the board of advisors of the Civic Institute in Prague. He is also a regular lecturer at the International Academy of Philosophy in Liechtenstein, the University of Lubin in Poland, and Université en Provence in France. But perhaps his most important contributions are with countless faith-based charities, which he serves both as a scholar and a counselor. And for his lifetime of service in public policy, in 1990, Father Sirico's work was recognized by his induction into the Montpellier Society, an international organization that promotes study of market-oriented systems in the hope of strengthening the principles of a free society. Father Sirico is also no stranger to the media. He is often called upon by CNN, ABC, the BBC, NPR, CBS's 60 Minutes, and other members of the news media for states, statements regarding economics, civil rights, and issues of religious concern. It's a real pleasure for us to have him with us today. Please join me in extending a very warm welcome to Reverend Robert A. Sirico. It's a frightening thought, isn't it, that a priest now is going to get up and preach for a while. <laughs> I will try to be very succinct, and um, the case I'm going to attempt to make um, is the synthesis between a market society and moral theology. That is to say, we overcome the clash between secularity and faith by understanding our origins. And so in this sense, I take as my um, axiom a quotation from Etienne Gilson, who said, that piety is never a substitute for technique. For without technique, piety is powerless to make use of nature for the glory of God. So I don't see uh, myself, I don't see the Christian uh, endeavor as a uh, essentially sectarian endeavor. I see it uh, from the model of the creation and the incarnation. Uh, I see it philosophically through the lens of natural law, and in this regard, I'm particularly honored to be here in the presence of, uh, uh, though not my formal teachers in, uh, in academia, certainly my teachers in terms of having read and absorbed their arguments, Dr. Finnis and Dr. George and others. Uh, so from the philosophical point of view, I begin with the, the premise that there is a natural law encoded in our hearts that reveals to us uh, our nature and our destinies. Human beings made in the Imago Dei are endowed with certain attributes such as liberty and reason. Reason being the predominant element that makes humans distinctly human and the means by which we uh, survive. Liberty, rather than being uh, a virtue in itself, is the necessary context in which we work out in which our practical reason enables human beings to flourish. Freedom, then, is partly constitutive of the Imago Dei, 
but it is a freedom oriented to something that transcends itself. Lord Acton put it well when he said that liberty is not the power of doing what we like, but the right of being able to do what we ought. For both Aquinas and Acton, freedom must be exercised within a society, but always in consonance with the common good, rightly understood. This, then, is the reply to the critics of religion, such as Marx, who contended that it disabled people from resisting tyranny, that it, in effect, anesthetized people. When I consider this understanding, this natural law approach to the human condition, uh, so classic and perennial, indeed so natural, uh, I think of the political and economic tyrannies of our own time. Communism and real socialism perverted the notion of the common good into a collectivism that destroyed human freedom. The philosophical and anthropological error that makes collectivism the perversion that it is, as the Holy Father has argued, is that it considers human good without reference to human freedom. That this is a dichotomy that is untenable. The economic centralization that we saw in the 20th century and that still is dominant in China and North Korea, though less so in China, is itself a form of tyranny, one that substantiates and um, perpetuates political tyranny. So the philosophical point here is that there is a connection between the natural law and the field of economics. Our institute, the Acton Institute, has within it the Center for Economic Personalism. And I see this as an attempt to make a connection between the natural law and economic disciplines. By recalling the simple yet true definition of economics as the study of the human attempt to achieve material conditions of flourishing in light of scarcity. The natural law has immediately recognizable contacts between, uh, b with, uh, with economics. If we accept the notion that the natural law is constrained, contained under the category of practical reason, then we can also point out that economics, as it starts in reflection on human action, is also properly understood as emerging from practical reason. Just as there are first principles of practical reason that inform the natural moral law, there are fundamental principles that constitute the basis of economics and rational economic action. Consideration of these principles would take us far beyond the scope of what I have to say here. However, they should be seen to relate directly from natural inclinations articulated by Aquinas, inclinations to self-preservation, to establishing and raising a family, even to the pursuit of knowledge. Productivity, creativity, participation, private property, and freedom in trade and initiative serve these natural inclinations, and indeed they orient them to the common good. So for our purposes, I just want to focus the attention on another point of overlap between the natural law and economics, the fact that since both disciplines study human action, that's, that's why there's this point of contact, they may be different from one or another aspect, 
But both find contemporary moorings in a properly understood praxeology and ultimately in anthropology. Economics is the study of human action in the marketplace, while moral philosophy is the study of the rightness or wrongness of human action in general. The human person is central to both economics and moral philosophy. The two sciences intersect in the human person and the systematic analysis of human action. A proper interrelation of the two demands an adequate anthropology. The human person must be understood only as a spirit, must not be understood solely as a spiritual entity, uh, but with a rich moral life that is also incarnated in a material and thus has mundane concerns. The economist qua economist offers recommendations concerning the most efficient way to meet human needs while simultaneously distancing himself from the ranking of those needs. Morality, from the natural law perspective, looks at human action in relation to its rightness and wrongness, to its reasonableness or unreasonableness in affecting human flourishing. Economics analyzes human freedom from the perspective of its ability to satisfy human need, alleviate scarcity, and engage in the material order productively. Given that both disciplines are rooted in human reason and human nature, they connect in the human person. It would therefore be impossible to argue that economic action, and thus indirectly the science of economics, does not have an inherently moral relevance and content. That is to say that economics is radically secularist. Of course, it is, uh, this is something that many contemporary social scientists refuse to acknowledge, that economics, while having a properly positive dimension in its analysis, is ultimately a normative science. It's certainly, well, I'll come to that in a little bit, that the historical point. Clearly, uh, a human science, as the social sciences are called in Europe, must abandon value neutrality and understand the embedded value dimensions of any human action. The natural law provides the needed approach to the problems of identifying and understanding a proper value system. The economist who implicitly assesses human nature in its praxeological theory and determinations of human needs should also be able to initially uh, to determine which needs are in accord with human nature and which are opposed or neutral. This is not to suggest that all economists become professional ethicists or theologians, but rather to highlight the impossibility, the ultimate uh, banality of a value-free social science in this sense. Economic personalism seeks to provide a holistic account of personal existence and thus supplement the genuine economic science with a science of morality in the marketplace. So we, in this endeavor, attempt to build on the Christian tradition, including natural law, and going uh, beyond it. Let me turn my, my, my remarks now to uh, the, uh, that was the, a very encapsulated philosophical uh, approach, how to uh, synthesis, to a kind of theological and, and then historical approach, and then close with some remarks about of practical uh, concern. Um, 
I have been at times in our discussion these two days a little concerned at the assumption that there is a radical separation between the secular and the sacred. I think, in fact, that very often happens, and it's not just because believers are pushed out of the secular. I think a lot of Christians are afraid, and they kind of gather themselves into bless-me clubs and for the sake of security and reinforcement. That would be a deadly mistake. That would be an, an abandonment of the Great Commission. Uh, I think we need to take society. We need to take history. We need to take the material world, and in this frame of reference, we need to take the marketplace seriously. We need to build a bridge precisely because without a transcendental understanding of these questions, the marketplace and all these other domains of secularity does not and cannot find its ultimate meaning. This certainly was the point that uh, Paul was making at the Areopagus when he quotes a pagan poet in order to speak in the language that was comprehensible to his audience, when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Certainly this is not pantheism, but you might call it a panentheism, that is to understand that not all things are God, but that God, in God all things exist because all things proceed from God. And so I take the point of the Incarnation. Uh, that uh, Mr. Mueller uh, alluded to, and I want to just kind of expand this a little bit. The cosmological and anthropological point of departure for the Jew and the Christian is that the world, the material world, has its origin in a good God, and that God pronounces this material world good. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. And that the human person, so this is not just a cosmological understanding, but also an anthropological presupposition, that the human person is a composite of this transcendent and corporeal reality. That man is formed in the image of likeness of God and formed from the dust of the earth into which is breathed the breath of life, and the man becomes a living soul. The creation gives us the beginning point of reference. In Christian theology, the incarnation returns us to that. God chooses to redeem the world not merely by a word that is spoken, but by a word that becomes flesh. That the redemption of the world and the Christian understanding of things takes place through the incarnation by the entrance of the transcendent God into human history and redeems the world from within itself. So the incarnation kind of fulfills or reiterates the intention of the creation. And sacramentality continues this. In the sacraments, we have the physical uh, dimensions of the communication with the divine. Nothing more beautifully exemplifies this than the Holy Communion, the Eucharist. Some of us will have disagreements on the, all of the theological delineations of that question. But let me simply say that it is intriguing to me that in instituting or in creating an institution whereby Christ communicates himself, he chooses not grape and grape, grain, grapes and grain, but bread and wine. And the difference being that bread and wine undergoes human transformation thereby taking seriously not only human history but human work, that God communicates himself to us in the very thing we create and offer to God. 
This all becomes the basis of an understanding and enables the church, in effect, to invent economics. Schumpeter, in point of fact, says in the second chapter of History of Economic Analysis that it was the scholastics more than anyone else, the schoolmen, the disciples of St. Thomas Aquinas, probably most succinctly seen in the school of Salamanca in the mid-16th century, who were the inventors of economic science or economics as a scientific discipline. It took years for that to be elaborated, but uh, there was this grappling, and I suggest to you it was because of this presupposition of the goodness of creation, the reiteration in the Incarnation, the whole presupposition of the sacramentality that God comes to us uh, in the material uh, reality, that he reveals himself to us. Now, uh, of course, there were contentions against this notion in the history of the church, not only in an economic sense, but it begins much more uh, fundamentally in a Christological sense, where the Arians on the one side and the Docetists on the other side have this basic battle. Uh, the last, uh, next to the last set of speakers for the day, but the last for this conference. So let me also quote Chesterton. And when he said that heresy is truth gone mad. And we see that truth going mad in the Arians and the Docetists. Both of them are affirming a truth. The Docetists affirming the truth of the divinity of Christ and the Arians affirming the truth of the humanity of Christ, but they both go mad with their little truth and it becomes this truth at the expense of all other truth. And so you have Arian claiming that Jesus was, Arius claiming that Jesus was truly man but not divine and the Docetists claiming that he was divine and not man. That's the Christological ramification of this dichotomy. But you also see it play itself out in very early forms of hostility to the market and private property. St. Francis was not an example of that. St. Francis celebrates the creation. He's not a pantheist. He celebrates the creation precisely because it is the creation. But there were a group of people, radical Franciscans, who went mad with St. Francis's insight and proposed to the church that it is a sin to own private property. The radical Franciscans, if you saw the movie The Name of the Rose or read Umberto Eco's book, you see the debate going on. And the church pronounces them in error. That the, the private property, as Leo will say later on, is sacred, but not absolute. So the church is constantly trying to hold things together. Jesus is God and man not one or the other. I suggest that becomes the paradigm for us to explore, through which to explore our relationship to the marketplace, our, our relationship to the material world is expressed in uh, contingencies and limitations. Um, I find very useful the Austrian School of Economics, not as an ideology, and certainly they're ideologists, but I think that its centrality of human action opens up, especially the first five chapters of Mises's uh, tome, Human Action, uh, finds great, I find great parallel and usefulness in comparing that, especially with the phenomenology and the personalism of John Paul II's work, very similarly named The Acting Person. And uh, I think that there is a kind of embedded natural law, even though it's officially rejected by someone like Mises or Hayek, 
But I think when you go back into understanding the history of the, the Austrian school, you find that it begins with Brentano, who was a priest who was trained, a Viennese priest who was trained in scholastic theology, who Menger studies under. Menger becomes the, 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 the teacher of Mises and Mises Hayek on down. Now, do I think that that is all, uh, that that system should be canonized, that it should be part of the official? No, of course not. What I'm saying is that it allows a less abstract understanding of economics and allows a much more uh, uh, deeper conversation about normative values because it centers itself on the human person. It distances itself from that kind of abstract mathematical uh, constructs that I think are uh, some of the vulnerabilities of the Chicago School and certainly the Keynesians. So I think that um, we have some uh, possibility here. Um, Fides et ratio this tells us that, that there is a legitimate autonomy uh, for the sciences, that they need to pursue their right ends uh, according to their own discipline. But if I were to close with some cautions, it would be never to permit a legitimate autonomy to become a new hegemony. And I think that in many respects, the field of economics attempts to do that. I was at a conference once speaking at an international conference and a Nobel laureate after I presented a paper on um, religion and economics, a Nobel laureate stood in the audience and voraciously said, we don't want to bring religion into this discussion. And I said, excuse me, your discipline began in moral theology. Welcome to my discussion. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what I think we need to do. I think another caution in dealing with the marketplace perennially is the confusion of means and ends. Markets only teach us about means. And this is why I think a broader understanding uh, needs to be situated within or rooting uh, market activity. In this regard, I think economic truth is true, but it's not the whole truth. And it needs a broader truth in order to reverence and uh, take account of the totality of who the human person is. In the practical reality, I think that um, we need to recognize that, um, that the church's mission is carried out, not essentially, certainly not normatively, in monasteries and convents, in chapels and churches, but it's carried out in the day-to-day -day life of men and women who, like um, Levin, are insinuated into the very structures of the world. I think this is the call of the Second Vatican Council. This is the great synthesis. This is the great model of the incarnation. This, uh, this uh, leaven that insinuates it through the structures of the world that brings the world to its own self-understanding that recommends to the world its own origin, recommends to the world its own meaning. This is what I call uh, uh, an entrepreneurial vocation, if you will, a vocation of business, that that's the normative way in which this is lived out. Uh, we have to heal the very seductive taxonomy or offer an alternative to the very uh, seductive taxonomy of Marx. Uh, this class struggle notion which uh, sees itself popping up in all kinds of areas. You know, the notion that there is an intrinsic hostility between the worker and the capitalist. We see it played out now in feminism, that there's some kind of 
um, intrinsic hostility between men and women, and environmentalism, that there's some kind of intrinsic hostility uh, between uh, man and the universe, or indigenous peoples and people who come later, and between the marketplace and, uh, and human beings. Uh, I think Mother Teresa, who was no philosopher, uh, answered the question more devastatingly than I have seen any other answer given to the notion of class struggle. She said, we seek not class hostility, but class encounter, where the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. I suggest that that synthetical view, as opposed to this kind of dichotomous approach, that synthetical view, the view that se seeks to bring things together to the extent possible, is a far more uh, fruitful endeavor for us in understanding the challenge that secularity in the marketplace presents to the life of faith. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father Sirico, for your very thoughtful and engaging uh, comments. Uh, we will open the floor to, com to questions now. I don't know whether we have student volunteers with mics at this point. I, I don't believe that we do. So we'll, we'll take questions and we'll ask those in the audience to speak as loudly as they can. Yes, thank you.
Well, uh, with all due respect, and perhaps this will seem out of place for a priest to say this, but uh, I, I sense, and it's very obvious, your concern for the poor. But I think the way in which you're coming at the question is an example of the dichotomization. What I am saying, and let me say it more radically and more explicitly, is that the normative way in which people rise out of poverty is not through all of the good and well-intentioned faith-based institutions in the world. That is not the way in which the poor rise out of poverty. The way the poor rise out of poverty, certainly in emergency circumstances, we need to help people. Absolutely. The principle of subsidiarity applies. Right. No, no, no. What I want to say is just eliminate trade barriers. Just eliminate sanctions. Just make markets. Now, there's a great deal of work that needs to be done in terms of the recognition of the institutions that provide for prosperity. Hernando de Soto, in both of his books, The Mystery of Capital, the more recent one, and The Shining Path, a previous one from the late 80s, uh, really describes the necessity of these institutions of protecting property and then registering ownership of land and houses. But the normative way in which these people are going to rise out of poverty is to have access to, to be able to do what we do, and that is to, to produce more than we consume. And there are institutions that back that up. There are cultures that back that up that are better and worse than others. So uh, the first thing I want to do in the name of the poor is to say free their economies. Let them trade. If tomorrow morning we had free trade. I understand that there are going to be some limitations in an age of terrorism, that we have to take account of some of the very dangerous things about this. But I think generally what we need to do is create a circumstance where they are invited into the circle of trade. Tomorrow morning it would be like an influx of not billions but trillions of dollars into the developing world if the developed world, not only the United States but Europe, uh, would change our policies with regard to our own subsidies, with regard to our trade barriers, with regard to our sanctions and, and other things, leaving aside the threat of terrorism, which is a separate thing. Robbie. Yes. Yes. No, I, I agree. And uh, uh, by the way, there is no machine. It's not like the human person comes to this machine that is known as the economy. We are the machine. Man is man's greatest resource. What economics is is not some abstraction that sits out there. The market, even though we use this term, the market, so we think we picture people over there selling and buying stuff. No, we are it. We are the valuing entity. We are, that's why prices, that's why uh, prices are subjective. And that's not to say that all values are subjective, but economic values are subjective. I wish I had much more time to talk about that. But I think that's a very important thing to understand, that it is our deciding, our valuing. That's why every decision to invest or not invest has a moral component to it. So uh, try not to think of this 
entity outside of us as a machine or the market as an abstraction, but we are it. And that's why we need to have a virtue-based uh, business ethic, not, not this kind of relativism that is rampant in almost all schools that teach business ethics. We did a survey uh, of the syllabi of various universities, and we found it is very alarming. It's just this kind of smorgasbord. Here's the dilemma. Here are the various moral systems. Take your choice. Now, that's not the way it's done. You've got to have it virtue-based, not just value-based. The reason I raised um, the example of Edith Stein early on was to try and identify two sources of how we can go wrong. Um, ignorance and sin. That's basically what it comes down to, I think. And so what we're talking about are two different things. Well, if you only knew this fact, it would improve things. Or if you only would improve, if you only change your moral behavior, that would improve things. Um, I've been a fan of a German, actually a Swiss economist. He left Germany because of the Nazi persecution, named Wilhelm Rupke, who wrote that economically ignorant moralism is as objectionable as morally callous economism. And that's the way I would look at it. We need both. We need both. The, we need both. We have to begin always with an accurate perception of reality. Edith Stein thought she was in trying to get close to God and leave the world behind, that she was uh, perceiving reality accurately. But then she concluded, no, I, I got it wrong. And you know why I got it wrong? It was partly because I, wasn't, I hadn't practiced attachment enough, attachment in the right way. So we are always facing exactly the same problems. Um, and so I think we can't take a one-sided approach to it. We have to inform ourselves, and then we have to uh, first, clean up our own act and then exhort others to um, you know, take the beam out of our own eye and then help our neighbor to remove the, the moat from his or her eye. Other questions? Yes, the gentleman at the side. Well, uh, actually, I don't think there's a need to, to have a disagreement, because I, I don't disagree with what he said. I agree with you, but I, I think you need to understand, to a very great extent, why the corruption exists in many of these countries. I'm not saying uh, totally, and I'm not saying this is the complete answer, but in great part, it's precisely because there are there are um, usually political actors in some form or another, if it's, if it's a chief or it's a cabal or it's a government or it's a, who, who, um, when people like yourself come to trade with folks, take a chunk out of that, control it, regulate it in such a way that it creates a culture 
of a corruption so that the petty bureaucrat down on this level can excise from people in order for people to do business. I don't know if in Nigeria you found uh, th- this, but certainly I know this uh, exists in numerous countries where business people want to go in and do some business, but the, the systems, the institutions of private property, of contract, of law, are not extant. So people engage in black market economies, you know, under the table, where rife, uh, where, which is rife for, for, uh, corruption and, and other forms of, um, uh, non-market activity. So I, I think it's a, both a problem culturally, but I think we contribute to that by not having open markets which would force them in order to trade to establish these institutions over time and thus cultures that would not tolerate that kind of corruption. I think you're right in identifying that, but I think we do a lot in preventing them from having the kind of contact, the kind of modeling, and the kind of responsibility. If Nigeria sees Kenya trading with the United States in terms of its agricultural goods because we drop our subsidies and that becomes a much more attractive market for us, and they are corrupt, they're going to imitate Kenya or vice versa. Uh, so I, I think there's, uh, this is, these are both truths that, that need to be put together. John Mueller, do you want to add to that? Um, no, if, it's not a, if there are other questions, I don't think I could. Okay. Yes, uh, at the back of the lecture theater. Yes, I, I would like uh, to add another dimension that has not been discussed. As a, as a former um, uh, Nigerian who was director of research in emerging markets, Years, I subscribe to your argument that uh, basically the third world was a lot of corruption, and I and I basically assign the blame for that entirely uh, in, in a domestic fashion. Um, however, for example, uh, you should consider that uh, the product of that corruption is deposited in these seven banks with full knowledge of the regulators and the governments of these seven. And, uh, and in the U.S., for example, there's something uh, called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that prohibits uh, uh, U.S. corporations from bribing uh, foreign officials. Um, and there's also anti-money uh, laundering uh, laws. And, um, and, the, and the main criteria for a bank to accept a deposit uh, from, a, from a, uh, an individual is basically know your customer. Now, if you see the brother of President Cedillo, for example, of President uh, uh, Salinas, uh, depositing $2 billion in Citibank Geneva, uh, one would think that you would ask, where did that money come from? And, and, and I suspect that not enough uh, questions are being asked by these seven banks. So it takes two to tango. I think you get agreement from, from the panel here. Yes, a question in front. Father Ed Andreco with the Princeton Campus Ministry. Just to carry on a little further with the point that you made about that one penny and ten dollars, if I understood Jeffrey Sachs correctly, he was saying that if we use that, we could eliminate the poverty of the poorest of the poor and all the problems that go with that, of a billion people. Uh, and I wondered if you wanted to read respond to that kind of a broad concern. But his concern was the poorest of the poor. And basically he said, don't expect the poorest of the poor 
know-how or to be able in any way to get out of their poverty? Well, uh, yeah, uh, the first part of your question, um, I, I'm not familiar with the studies that he's referring to. Um, certainly, according to the principle of subsidiarity to which I uh, subscribe, when there is an urgent situation and there, is no, there are no mediating institutions that can alleviate that situation, we need to have uh, organizations of a higher order uh, intervene temporarily, not normatively, under emergency circumstances, and be prepared to remove themselves as soon as possible once the, the social order recoheres. So in principle, uh, I would agree with that if that's the circumstance. But um, I question uh, the notion that the poorest of the poor don't have the ability to be the agents of their own uh, regeneration. I think that, and I'm not, I didn't hear Dr. Sachs, so I don't take this as a, an attack on Dr. Sachs, but I think that kind of attitude about the poor is what leaves the poor. It's a form of disrespect for the poor. I think what we need to do is create the conditions under which a person can help themselves, because that too is the principle of subsidiarity, that a person is responsible for him or herself first. And you never do for somebody what they can't what they can do for themselves. And sometimes that takes a little whack in the rear end to get them going, and sometimes it takes an infinite amount of patience, and this is precisely why we don't want to bureaucratize these systems of, of assistance. So I think we need to, to do them on the local levels. I think particularly in the developing world, this is where the church is so uh, magnificently equipped because we have people very close who are living with in close proximity to the poor. And I think uh, that also has a whole moral and evangelistic dimension to it, because then when we are there doing that, rather than the UN and their agencies doing that, the, the, the relationship, it, it really is a bonding relationship, rather than just giving money. When we just give money, that's the way we treat animals. When animals are hungry, we feed them. When they're thirsty, we give them water. When they're cold, we take them in the barn. That's not the way we treat human beings. We treat human beings as our brothers and sisters. We associate ourselves with them. We bond with them. And sometimes money is needed for that, and other times other things are needed for that. All I'm saying is let's not go back to that whole paradigm of the redistribution of wealth as the solution. It may very well be that $30 billion would take care of it, and that and then... You know, but I don't think so. <laughs> I'm, I'm applauding. I'm applauding empirical type, and that's why I didn't respond immediately to the question that was asked. Um, I'm trying to understand what Professor Sachs was saying. Uh, is he saying $30 billion would solve world poverty? Let's think. Let's 30. Let's let's 30. 30 for one billion of the poorest. Yeah. So let's think it through. Let, can I just can I just start with the analysis, okay? And then you can tell me if it's right or wrong. I believe that the threshold that he's referring to is a dollar a day, or three hundred sixty-five dollars a year. So he's saying that thirty billion dollars, or thirty dollars per person, could raise um, everyone out of poverty. The cut-off level sounds to me is rather arbitrary. Are we going to be satisfied then if we raise the uh, the standard of living of these people from a dollar a day, or say, ninety cents a day to a dollar a day, or a dollar one a day? Because there we we've left them above the poverty level. I don't think that does it. It's not about um, curing poverty 
Yes, and, and never to get ourselves in the Samaritan dilemma where we do uh, damage to the poor with the thought of helping them, especially with uh, agents, uh, foreign assistance. If we flood a country with food and we destroy its in, innate uh, indigenous agriculture, uh, we, you know, so we have to be very careful, and the virtue of prudence is required um, in this regard. Right. Of course. Of course. No, no. This is not Ayn Rand sitting before you. <laughs> Believe me. No. Uh, well, I've never uh, participated in, in a discussion where there was so much agreement, so I think we will conclude it on this uh, very amiable note. And uh, before we do so, please join me in thanking Mr. John Mueller and Reverend Sirico. We will reconvene promptly at 4.30 for our final discussion on secularism in America and the world featuring John DiULio and Philip Jenkins. Thank you.